Hello, I'm John Chambers, and welcome to another episode of Chambers Talks, my LinkedIn podcast. It's been tremendously exciting so far to share the experiences of many of my friends uh, teaching others about how they've grown in leadership, how they handle disruptions, how as we become a digital world, do we really focus on business outcomes, and how do we deal with crises as well? So it's a session for us really to deal with the top issues facing not just high tech, but in general, uh, businesses around the world. Today, I'm with a very good friend, Jim Whitehurst, president of IBM. Uh, Jim, for many of you who've known, he joined IBM through the acquisition of Red Hat, but he spent 12 years at Red Hat, so he's seen the startup environment and grow well. He's seen the one of the iconic names in IBM reinventing itself. Uh, before that, he was with Delta Airlines, so he clearly understands basic enterprise and the ups and downs of commercial aviation. Uh, and before that, 12 years at Boston Consulting Group. So, Jim, you've run the whole gamut. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for being with us today, and, and let's have fun in the conversation. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This is great. I'm glad I could be here. Well, it's a lot of fun. Uh, IBM, and let me start with the big picture because we can talk in the big picture and then bring it down to elements of leadership underneath of it. IBM has been an iconic figure. Uh, and if you watch the transition that IBM's going through, as an outsider, many people might not understand what are the key goals that you have in place, what are you changing, et cetera, and how difficult is it to change a company that's been so successful and iconic? So maybe if you could, uh, talk a little bit about where IBM has been and where you and Ivan are taking IBM in the future. Yeah, so yeah, we are right in the middle of a, of a fairly significant transition. The way I would describe IBM kind of always, the enduring part of IBM is to take the existing technology context and apply it to the existing business needs. And so I think a lot of people's view of IBM kind of right now is what we did in that last context. And I want to say that last kind of the 90s, 2000s was client server on the hardware side, best of breed on the software side. And if you remember on the business side, Nicholas Carr's famous article, IT doesn't matter. It's not about competitive advantage. And if you think about that world of the 90s, early 2000s, what we did was built this massive middleware business to be able to plug together all this uh, hardware and software into holistic solutions. We built this massive solution capability so we could offer a one-stop shot, give us the keys, we will run it all for you. And we're very successful doing that. But if you fast forward to today, the technology context is homogenous infrastructure, whether you want to call that public cloud or all the other kind of buzzwords, but we're talking about homogenous infrastructure that people want to innovate more quickly on. And, you know, you have this explosion of places where innovation is coming from, whether that's open source or public cloud or SaaS or more startups in the ecosystem. And then for businesses, it's not about the back office. It's about creating advantage you know, creating new businesses. So for IBM, we are transitioning to say our technology stack needs to be how do you consume innovation from anywhere? And we can talk about kind of what that means, how we build an ecosystem on top of that, because the from anywhere is typically not from us, it's from other software or hardware vendors or public clouds. And then importantly, and this is the hardest part about culture change is it's no longer about us doing it for our clients. 
It's about doing it with our clients. Nobody's outsourcing what they perceive as competitive advantage. And so we're going through a whole retooling of how we go to market and our uh, uh, services organization on how we co-create you know, competitive advantage with our clients versus saying, give me the keys, I'll do it for me. So we can get into the details, but it's a fundamental change in kind of this horizontal hybrid cloud architecture and then how we address our clients and work with them to kind of create their own future. When IBM acquired Red Hat, it was clearly a message to the market that they're going to change. Uh, what was it like uh, being acquired? Was it an easy decision for you? Uh, what was it like when you came to IBM? Uh, were there cultural differences? Your first meetings, what were they like? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So many people listening here are thinking about doing acquisitions or thinking about being acquired, or do they do an IPO, et cetera, on it? Uh, share your experience, if you would. Yeah, well, I would say, first off, I think I, we got very, very lucky in that I never had to make a decision between what's best for the company and the employees and what's best for the shareholders. Because, you know, as you Red Hat was doing great and we were growing well, we felt good. But with the growth of public clouds and these massive, massive companies, we knew we were subscale. Yet we felt passionately about choice, hybrid, open. And so we were really struggling with strategy. And IBM comes along and says, hey, we want to buy you. And because we believe in this hybrid cloud, open, choiceful approach. So it was certainly the right thing for the people at Red Hat and for our clients because it's persisting the same strategy. Yet it gives us a lot more scale and breadth to be able to apply. And then it was, frankly, the right thing for uh, you know, the shareholders as well. And I think that's important. I think the key, and, and I know you know this well, is you really always have to think about what's enduring the best thing for the company, not for the management team. And so I think we got, you know, so, which, which we did. And so luckily the strategy was right and you know, the partner was right. Now I will say coming in, uh, it, there has been a lot of culture shock. You know, Red Hat is a very kind of open style, very, very transparent, very kind of in your face and let's have the hard debates. And matter of fact, a lot of people who join Red Hat would say, wow, it's almost a harsh culture where IBM is very kind of decorous, right? You know, kind of people wait their turn to speak and it's very polite. And so I will say you go into meeting at Red Hat, um, I felt like the an average person because people had no issue questioning me. I'd walk in the meeting at IBM and Everybody gets silent and they want to know kind of what you're thinking and what's your mood, what do you want to talk about? And so, frankly, I've been working to kind of break that down a bit. And the, the good news is the, the talent at IBM is truly extraordinary and the people work like incredibly hard. And so we're kind of bringing a bit of the transparency in from, uh, you know, kind of Red Hat into kind of how we're making decisions and kind of driving debate. And the flip side, kind of bringing a greater sense of structure from IBM into Red Hat. So it's really been kind of a, a nice marriage where we've learned a lot from both sides. The most important lesson is you got to assume positive intent on both sides. I think both sides have. And so it's working well. Well, you know, a related question uh, on this is it might surprise many of the listeners, but I found IBM for the last candidly two decades to be a very good partner and a company that understands where their innovation is and understands what they might get from a partnership. Clearly, you all are accelerating that now at a tremendous pace. Uh, but out of all my startups that are facing IBM, it is a great partnership and you're very candidly easy to 
to be a partner with. And if it isn't a good outcome, you're very quick to say, no, this just isn't working. How did you build that into the culture? Why did, was IBM so good at that? When many companies, especially out here on the West Coast, they almost reject outsiders and, and uh, new players. Uh, what caused that? And then how integral is that in terms of the changes that you are making to IBM's culture? Yeah, so look, I think IBM um, has always seen itself as a platform company. And if you think about platforms, platforms require ecosystems, right? You're never the only person delivering those solutions. And so I think it's deep in our DNA. And I would say kind of it goes through ebbs and flows of cycles about kind of when we are strongly delivering the platform and then kind of when we've kind of gotten a little more vertical. But if you look at whether it was the original kind of mainframe and the ecosystem we built there, or certainly in the web sphere client server days, it was all about the ecosystem on it. Certainly now we're looking to lay down a horizontal platform where the hyperscalers are big partners. You know, ARM is a big partner. Every ISV is a partner. What we want to be able to do is go to people and say to enterprises, buy this platform and anybody who's innovating, it runs on this platform, whether it's Amazon or Google or whether it's a startup or whether it's SAP, right? And so our value is being able to bring all that innovation on the platform. Therefore, to uh, all of the people who innovate, again, whether it's open source or startups or any of these, we need to say, come on this platform. And because we're landing it at all of these enterprises, you know, we're going to create an incredible channel for you. So it's that network effect of a platform of we need everybody to work on it and therefore everybody will buy it and everybody will buy it because everyone's on it. And so that's what we're really driving with this uh, next generation platform. And the reason we're excited about it is, you know, with this growth of clouds, the clouds are great innovators. They're great places to deploy applications, but they are a bit vertical stovepipe. And so by laying a platform that runs across all of them, we can look at a, at, a, at a client and say, hey, you can run this on Amazon and you can run it with IBM's DB2, you know, with a startup doing this and integrate it with Salesforce doing that. And we can weave all that together via a common platform. But it only works if we have other partners there because we'll do maybe 5% of the innovation on top of the platform and we'll clearly de de deliver solutions, but the majority will come from outside our walls. You know, your focus on customers is, is something that is near and dear to my heart. And uh, I, I think the ability to do this together with customers rather than form uh, sounds basic, but boy, it's, it's a, a cultural change. And in many ways, you're focused on the outcome for the customers. How do you all drive change? You know, if we were educating the people listening to the audience, how do you take a great company and make it even better and drive change from within? And how do you then transition to a partnership that actually ended up breaking the company into two pieces? Yeah, well, so first off on customer is the heart of that. I have to tell this story really quickly because I do think this is one of the big lessons learned for me. You know, we had a big uh, Red Hat customer who had... OpenShift, which is an infrastructure product of ours, up and running. And they had a massive power surge that took out down their whole data center and the whole system went down. And, you know, it, there was nothing they could do. It took out their power supply. So it literally went dark. And when they brought it back up, it didn't appropriately attach to the storage. And not, not to get off in the weeds of the details, but anyway, when we got together to a root cause analysis, this was after the acquisition closed that we were doing the root cause analysis. And it's also a big IBM customer, so they're in the room. And frankly, the Red Hat response was, hey, we told them, and we can show you the emails where we told them that the storage was misconfigured. 
And, you know, kind of, so we told them the IBM team looked at us and said, that is nowhere near good. It doesn't matter that you told them. It doesn't matter if you have the right answer and told you go there and you camp out till it's fixed. We're about client success, not about being right or necessarily just the right products. And it was a real lesson for me about how IBM deeply, deeply, deeply thinks about client success first and almost kind of their offering second, where I was proud of what we built at Red Hat about great offerings, but it, the, that really extra step on all about client success, no matter what, has been a real learning for me. And it becomes the center back to kind of the core of your question around how we ground change, around how we really think about well, where are clients going and therefore what is the capability we need to build? You know, one of the hardest things, John, you talked earlier about I was at Delta and yeah. we made a lot of change at Delta, but we were in bankruptcy. And you always know, say the luxury of red ink, right? We had a sense of urgency because, you know, it was change or go away. And as I always told Jenny kind of coming in, I said, you know, IBM's biggest problem is we're really, really profitable, right? We have a lot of free cash flow. So how do you get the sense of urgency? And so what we've really centered on is this transition of, hey, clients used to just want somebody to do it for them. Now technology is at the heart of competitive advantage. And so it's not create solutions, it's co-create solutions. And that we've tried to use that as a wedge to kind of drive the, we need to fundamentally change how we operate because what our clients need has changed and therefore how they want to work with us has changed. But it's hard. We're literally starting at, uh, behaviors. Like literally, I had a meeting today on this where we're defining basic behaviors that we want to change to make sure that we're getting people to be more collaborative, to be willing to have debate and really working it kind of ground up through the organization. You know, I, I follow with tremendous interest how you all broke yourself up into two companies. Yeah. Nuco really uh, focusing so much on delivering managed infrastructure services and an IBM that really focuses on where the cloud is going and artificial intelligence. How is that working? And, and can you share with the group part of the thought process behind it? And how do you really get the company so focused for the future? Yeah, so I'll use an example. This wasn't what drove the decision, but I'll use the example because I, I, to me, it makes it clear because I lived it is, you know, back when I ran Delta Airlines, you know, it was all about high reliability. You know, how do you make sure planes get out? How do you orchestrate? It was 90% of the time in my office, you know, having performance reviews and how do you make sure all that orchestration happens for the miracle of a plane to take off with pilots, crews, bags, passengers. I then went to Delta or went to Red Hat and I spent 90% of my time out of my office with yes. clients because. It, it, it Red Hat, it's all just like, you know, at Cisco, it's all about innovation. You need to know where the world's going. You need to be thinking about it. And when you call a transition right and have the right products, you know, those become very profitable for a long time. So it's much more external. The problem for IBM, I observed, is we, we're doing kind of both, right? You have to do to run uh, um, people's infrastructure well in the traditional sense where you have all of this client server hardware and all of these you know, best of breed software and you have these things integrated and you need to run them well together. It's running multiple nines of reliability, efficiency, efficiency, you know, focus on investments around automation, et cetera, et cetera. Where cloud and where it's going, it's more of the Red Hat thing where you're like looking forward, you need to be out, you need to be kind of calling the next place. It's all about how you inject variants into the processes because that's how you get innovation. And it was yeah. really hard to do both in the same company. 
right? And so I think we decided ultimately, look, there's a strong need and a growing need for people to run their kind of more traditional infrastructures more efficiently. And over time, think about how they're going to drive kind of efficiency and change in that. That is very different than being able to say, what are the business outcomes and innovation that enterprises need to kind of build their future competitive advantage? And how can we do that leveraging a very homogenous hybrid cloud platform to be able to go do that? And we just decided that the, the skill sets were so different, the operating cadence, even the way you would fund the things are so different that they really belonged um, you know, it, with different ownership, different management structures to run in a different way. And it's one of the things I find really amazing about IBM. We were literally willing to change what we do in the context of what customer needs are at that time. And so we look at it now, customers want to innovate faster. We need to be all in on that. And the doesn't mean that that uh, we don't also need to run data centers, you know, efficiently and effectively. But it's just so different. We didn't think we could do both as effectively as uh, creating the split. You know, it's exciting to watch, and and I believe you're absolutely headed the right way, and you can see it in the market and from the joint customers that I interface to. I'm going to switch uh, directions a little bit now and talk about leadership and lessons learned for the people on the podcast. Uh, when you think about leadership. How do you manage through a crisis like the COVID challenge and the economic issues? Uh, what do you do in terms of the here and now? And then how do you get the company ready for the future? So, I, well, first off, um, I'm a big believer, and I think this is true of Arvin as well. So I don't want to say I, so I should say we as this, the leadership team. Yes. You need to be absolutely transparent about current situation. As someone told me, you know, this was particularly true at Delta. They said, yeah, when you get in front of a large group of people, especially in a time of crisis, you're, any human being's natural ability is to try to provide comfort and say things are going to be okay or some way try to smooth off the stress. But as someone told me in the Delta situation, I think we've applied it all the way through, you know, through COVID is the best thing you can do for people is be absolutely, totally honest so people know the facts, they know the details and can kind of ultimately make a set of decisions. So we've really focused on how can we be absolutely transparent? And a lot of that's kind of focused on the strategy because this, this hybrid cloud strategy is very different than our prior strategy around kind of integration. So we have spent months and months and months being very, very clear on that strategy. We've worked to be very clear about how COVID is accelerating that strategy. And I think that clarity and what, what I'd like to do is have every single employee of IBM be able to affirmatively say, I deeply understand the strategy of IBM and what I can do to make it successful, both in terms of the strategic context, as well as the, the uh, broader kind of industrial context in which we're operating. And so we've been pushing really, really hard to do that. And if you can do that, then as you're making decisions, people can contextualize those and the amount of communication you have to do against each decision goes down because people have the broader kind of context. And I think that's critical to get set up. Learn Again, learn that at, uh, at Delta the hard way, um, yeah. but have continued to be able to apply that as we've gone forward. Well, you in listening to it, you're, you're really focused on uh, catching market transitions enabled by new technology and then having the courage to change as you move forward. Uh, as you take risk on changing, uh, it doesn't always work out. Do you think leadership is more a product of the successes or is it how do you handle your setbacks and how do you teach that to others? 
Well, two, two things. Without a doubt, you, you learn more from your failures, and that's how, how you uh, moderate and learn and experiment and get better. I, I will say I think very few strategies are brilliant come from the top. I think is, and as you know, you know, that's why you're out in the field and you're talking to people and you're seeing experiments and what works. And then ultimately as a leader, you're synthesizing what you've seen with your people and call that the grand strategy. And people look and say, wow, great strategy. But actually what you've done is synthesized in, you know, to some extent genericized in a positive way, you know, a set of things that you've seen in the field that you now say, okay, that makes a trend. And I can see that trend. And I'm going to go do something. So people have to be able to take risks and try things to do it, which means means people have to have both agency to be able to go do that. They have to have the authority to go do it. And then the confidence that if they take risks and experiment, they're not going to get shot uh, as those work out. And so that's why we've been working really, really, really hard on how do we drive after people have clarity around the strategy to make sure that we're driving kind of the decision rights out further towards the edge where the right experiments can happen for the right things to to emerge. Uh, I think that's critical, critical, uh, because I think our ability to guess where technology is going to go is really tough. I think that the, the important point is to have enough experiments out there. And then as you see things start to take off, you know, the art of great leadership is saying that's big enough. It's going to be a megatrend. Let's go all in. And that's I know when you talk about, you know, catching the transition, it's not you have to guess where the transition is. You just have to identify it and have a system out there that, that that's finding it so you can then jump on it when you see it. It's amazing how often our customers would tell us where the market's going if we just spend time with them and say, how do we help together uh, accomplish the goals? Uh, as a young leader, I didn't understand how important culture was. And whether it's a great established company like IBM uh, that is transitioning uh, or a startup listening to this broadcast as well, uh, I used to think about the role of the CEO was to, you know, the vision and strategy for the company, uh, to hire, develop, recruit, and change the leadership team to implement that, and to communicate all of the above, when in fact, culture is absolutely the fourth element of that. And during times of transition and stress, culture may be even more important than vision and strategy. What's your view and what would be some of the lessons that you would help people listening to this podcast understand on culture? And, and when do you know how to when to evolve it? And how do you constantly walk the talk and send the messages, much like you did in one of your staff meetings, it sounds like this morning already? Yeah, look, I totally believe that culture is 95% of a company's success. And developing and setting tone and culture is literally kind of how you're going to win in the future. You know, I think if you go back 200 years or 100 years, you know, so much of the source of advantage was around economies of scale, right? You know, if I make uh, 100,000 cars, it's cheaper than if I make 1,000 cars. If I make a million cars, it's incrementally a little bit cheaper. And when that was where value was created, you could kind of pre-plan because you kind of know if you make more, you know, more standardized, things are going to be cheaper. The problem is in a world of ambiguity where more and more of the value is created by innovation, it's really hard to innovate from the top. So all of a sudden setting the context for innovation, experimentation to happen, and then be able to kind of quickly, frankly, call out the things that aren't working and double down on the things that are, 
that's almost all about culture. You could argue there's 10%, you know, how you're going to allocate budget and how you allow people to do things. I mean, you had a brilliant old spin in, you know, kind of process at Cisco was brilliant. So there are some structural solutions to it, but 90% of it is people, you know, thinking about it and the sh- uh, th- you know, issues in the shower before they go to bed. It's coming in, being willing to have the hard conversation saying this works, this doesn't work. And then as those ideas emerge, jumping on them and continuing to kind of build the ones that are, but also have the courage to kill the ones that aren't. And virtually all of that is in culture. It's how do you get people to take risks? How do you get people to work well together? Because that's another thing we found is that great ideas are, never come from crowdsourcing. I always say this about open source. People always say, why is open source so good? It's in the crowdsourcing. The answer is no, it's not the best idea out of a million ideas. It's how do you get a million people to argue and debate and fuse together great, you know, one great idea out of many? And so getting an organization to do that is all about how you get people willing to have the right conversations, trusting each other, um, you know, kind of believing in the positive intent of others for those great ideas to emerge. And again, great strategies emerge out of that. They rarely are there brilliant people top down who came up with a great idea. Every now and then there's a few, but almost all of them kind of emerge up. And that I don't think you can prescribe a way to do that. It has to come from kind of people and individual imagination and how you harness it. And that all comes down to culture. And so to me, I mean, that's the, I think the real beauty of Red Hat and I had a whole team of people who were passionate about it. It was, how do we make sure the right debates happen? How do we make sure people feel included, trust each other, but also respect each other enough to question each other's ideas for the right things to emerge and having the courage to admit mistakes? And those things, if you can do that, you will have an innovative company. We've covered a lot of areas. Uh, Jim, I think you listen all the time to customers, your employee family, to your ecosystem, et cetera. Uh, one of the questions I always like to ask in these podcasts is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten uh, and what's the worst? And it's it's obviously a teaching moment that I'm asking you about here. You know, I would say the, the, the best piece of advice I got um, was from the, the CEO of Delta, you know, Jerry Grinstein, which was all about listen, listen, listen. And the story I always remember about that, I remember as we were getting into to, you know, financial difficulty, we had these uh, restructuring advisors in and he's in the meeting and he's scribbling notes and scribbling notes and scribbling notes. And, uh, you know, after that meeting, I was still in there with, you know, some of the team and they said, well, that's really amazing. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you rarely see a CEO of kind of a big iconic company scribbling notes. It somehow conveys that, you know, something they don't know. And I thought, well, he does that all the time. And I I, I thought it was completely normal. But, you know, I do think conveying a willingness to listen and admitting that you don't know things is actually a source of power. (laughs) You know, it's a power strong. It's a source of uh, of uh, respect that you can ultimately gain because people say, oh, wow, this person, you know, is listening to me. They're writing down what I'm saying because, you know, they re- a, respect me enough and believe I'm saying something. So I think it brings people to you and it's kind of a source of authority and leadership. And so that listen, listen, always be learning, I think is by far the, the, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten. There was a second part of your question, which was? What was the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? And as you um, think about that, I, I want to echo what you just said. Uh, I originally thought that your employee family wanted you to have all the answers. And if they asked you a question and you didn't have it, that was a weakness. 
or if you take notes, as you said, uh, as the lessons you learned, that shows that perhaps you didn't understand something as well, when in fact, it actually shows how you want to run the com- company and the culture of openness and a willingness to say, there's some things I just don't know, but I can get the answer to it. And you're constantly learning. But the worst piece of advice you ever got is, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I'd say the worst, and, and, I, and I want to couch it a little bit, is around you need to be more decisive. And what I mean by that, there's nothing wrong with being decisive, but being decisive so many times, certainly in our culture, is around cut off debate and just stop listening and make a decision. And at some point, you do have to cut off debate and make a decision. But man, I would rather let debate run too long than not run uh, long enough. You know, we used to say at, at Red Hat, we never ran a change management project because we always involved so many people in a decision. By the time we made a decision, everybody understood the what's and why's and either if they disagreed, they had the context. So we didn't have to do change management, change just happened. So it takes a long time to make a decision, but execution happened really, really fast. And so I do think that while being decisive isn't necessarily a bad trait, it can't be decisive, uh, meaning I'm going to cut off debate or I'm not going to fully listen to a set of, uh, of opinions, because I think that's where not only do you not necessarily make the best decisions, but you are kind of damaging the capability of, of your team uh, to, to help you and, to, 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 and um, kind of ultimately generate kind of better decisions. You know, we covered a lot of topics today. One of the things that I firmly believe in is, is when you transition a company, especially if you're doing it very rapidly, is to take a step back and almost write the press release of what you want your team, your investors, your customers to understand where you're going and define what the press release would look like three to five years out. What does IBM look like three to five years out? How do you communicate that to your employees and to your customers? And and how do you know that you're setting the right expectations and moving fast enough to achieve that vision? So what I would like, and I've thought about it similar, but I've always thought from the client, what would I like my best customers to say about me? And I think what I'd like our customers to say about IBM is they really were my essential partner at navigating this new complex you know, kind of web of innovation, and it helped me establish by, you know, new strategic imperatives. And what I mean by that, again, there's an explosion of innovation out there, and most vendors are offering a sliver of innovation, uh, right? And what we're trying to do is say, look, we can't guess where the future's going, but what we can say is if you have an architecture that's built to allow you to consume innovation from wherever that's from, and we can help you translate that into reaching your full business potential, then we've achieved our full potential as IBM. That's what we're about. It's not delivering all of or even a third of the innovation that's good, that, that, a, that an enterprise is going to be consuming. It's creating the vehicle to enable that to happen and really being able to work to help people create businesses around that. And that's what we're really, really focused on. It's not that, you know, we love to create, you know, so quantum and the things we're doing there or explainable AI. So it's not that we don't love to do that, but I think our enduring essential position is translating the massive innovation that can happen in technology into business value. And in this day and age, it's just, again, this explosion of, of sources of innovation. And so how do we make people uh, allow people to, to effectively, securely, reliably, ethically kind of consume that? And that's where we're really focused. And if we have, you know, 500 
clients around the world who say, wow, we've reinvented our business um, you know, with that. And it was essential that IBM were part of that. Uh, I'll check the box as, as success. You know, we covered so many topics today, and I think that's a great one to end on. But I want for the audience to, if you watch this video twice, count how many times Jim used the word customers and how many times he said, how do we enable customers to achieve their goals and how do you do it with an ecosystem of partners? I, 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 it's exciting what you guys have planned for IBM's future. Jim, I value the friendship. It's been for over 12 years. Thank you for putting up with me. It was an honor to interview you today. I uh, want to thank the people listening to the podcast for investing the time. And we look forward to the next Chambers Talks in the future. Have a great day, everyone, and be safe.